Hey, question for you. What's the value of a worn door from a shabby New York hotel spray-painted with an X and thrown out during renovation? One more factor. What if the door was to Jack Kerouac's room or Bob Dylan's? How much would you pay for a first contract signed by the Jackson 5 or boxing gloves worn by Archie Moore? Maybe a marked-up manuscript of Malcolm X's autobiography or Rosa Will's, Rosa Parks' will and estate plan. My guest knows the answer. He's Arlen Ettinger, the president and chief executive of Guernsey's, which is an auction house that has stakes its reputation on non-traditional objects. Thank you so much, Mr. Ettinger, for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, Listen, I myself have an appetite for the obscure, but I'm blown away by the... It's a sickness. (laughs) It's it's a sickness I've had for a long time. By the way, I'll tell you about a couple of things I've collected in a moment, but I was really shocked to read in the New York Times that the the Jack Kerouac room door, not even his permanent residence, but a hotel where he stayed, 37,500, Bob Dylan's door, 125K, that's wild. It was a wild story when a homeless man who had a sort of a love affair with the iconic Chelsea Hotel and had lived there except until he was forced out because he just uh, ran out of money, uh, saved 52 doors from the garbage. They were being thrown out as part of a renovation of the hotel and came to us. And you'd look at these doors and any sane human being uh, would, would think anything more than a dollar apiece would have been insane. But there was a compelling story there behind the doors, and uh, indeed, uh, many of these doors led to the rooms of very uh, uh, interesting and uh, iconic people, and we did an auction. Part of the results went to City Harvest here in New York to raise funds for the homeless, and it was a wonderful story, and you're right. The Dillon door went for 125000 There was a Janis Joplin door that went for 110000 and so on. You must hear great stories every single day. Every day. I mean, like the the Jack yep. the Jackson Five contract. How does that come to you? What's the background on that? I met the gentleman who had signed up the Jacksons about well in the mid nineteen sixties when he stumbled into a junior high school gymnasium in Gary, Indiana, sees this extraordinarily talented group of kids finds their father, signs them to a recording contract, and the Jackson 5 and Michael Jackson's career was launched. Yesterday, uh, as I was in my office, uh, I was contacted by a person uh, from Sweden, of all places, in possession of a guitar that was used to smack Bob Marley on the head by a girlfriend, uh, a guitar Bob Marley played, with a long history of photographs of Marley with the instrument. Uh, it had been repaired after this uh, altercation, and now it's being offered to us. It, it happens every day. Well, guitars are a big part of your stock and trade, right? I'm looking on your website at some of the past auction items. For example, uh, Jerry Garcia's guitar or guitars was a big seller for you. It was. Uh, initially sold out of Jerry's will when he left the guitars to another homeless man simply because 
uh, that homeless man had built the guitars for Jerry a quarter century earlier. He was the luthier, the guitar maker who made those instruments. We sold them back 15 years ago for 956000 and 800000 respectively, both world record amounts for any guitar at that time. But the gentleman who bought the $800,000 guitar, known to Grateful Dead fans as Wolf, came back to me a year ago uh, expressing serious concern of the, about the divisiveness in America today and simply wanted to do something good and suggested we take that guitar back and resell it and give all the money to the Southern Poverty Law Center, which many know uh, does important work by fighting racism and hate groups. And we held a one-lot auction at a, a wonderful venue in Brooklyn, New York, the Brooklyn Bowl, uh, and people flocked in, and that guitar went for $3.5 million, a new world record for any guitar ever sold. Unbelievable. Our, our history goes way beyond guitars. We're the folks who sold a single baseball for $3 million. Uh, we were fortunate in doing the world's largest auction. Now, there was a story where the glory of the American Ocean Liner Fleet, the SS United States, was about to be towed out to sea, and the contents dumped overboard uh, all thousand rooms and hundreds of public spaces, more than a million items. And uh, we were able to stop that process and did what stands today as the world's largest auction. Is there a particular appetite for any one of the modern American presidents? I, I'm, For example, I know that the Kennedy era has always been a a big subject of fascination and investment by people who are attracted to these sort of things. But I'm I'm wondering, is there a market for Bill Clinton? Is there a market for Barack Obama yet? What do you see? Well, we did all, all three of the John F. Kennedy auctions. We also sold the Franklin Roosevelt auction, uh, Franklin Roosevelt collection, uh, sold uh, many things from Lyndon Johnson. Uh uh, just on rare occasion, we've had some things from Bill Clinton, but I haven't really seen a trend yet. If I had to take a guess at it, uh, my instincts tell me that down the road, uh, things from President Obama will stand out amongst the more recent presidents. That's my gut instinct. How about Reagan? Reagan certainly has a place in history, and there are those who uh, joy in his memory. Uh, I haven't seen things yet offered on the market from him. And uh, from what I understand, uh, those objects uh, relating to President Reagan are very safeguarded in the presidential library. But things do get out, often in very interesting and sometimes unusual ways. And uh, But nothing of importance yet has been offered to us, so I can't speak beyond that. This is Arlen Ettinger, president and chief executive of Guernsey's. Can you tell me about Rosa Parks' house? I can. Uh, in, 19, in the late 1950s, following her bold stance on uh, the bus and refusal to give up her seat, uh, she was persecuted by those who didn't think she was a hero. Uh, you know, there's always two sides of that story, and uh, they were the haters. And in time, she fled north to join her family in Detroit. Uh, the family of very modest means were living in a very small two-story house uh, in Detroit, and there uh, Rosa Parks found uh, refuge and was protected. And so that house has great, great meaning. Uh, the house fell into disrepair, um, 
until just recently when members of her family uh, were able to acquire it back from the city of Detroit. And then with the help of an artist who was very passionate about the history of this place, uh, had it very lovingly and carefully taken apart, much like you would do an erector set, uh, numbering every piece. Architects were brought on board, engineers. Uh, the house was dismantled and then shipped to Europe, where it was uh, reassembled, and it's, it's something that's very easily done, where it caused a sensation. It came back to the U.S., was most recently displayed in Providence, Rhode Island, and now we have it for sale. Um, there are interested parties, but if someone's listening to this and wants to uh, give a home to this wonderful and, and very, very important uh, uh, historic structure, they certainly call Guernsey's. You would think that a museum, you know, that a civil rights museum or, or the Smithsonian, that Smithsonian, that it would go into hands where the public could view it. You would think that and one would hope that. But I can tell you from firsthand experience that uh, after Rosa Parks passed away many years ago, uh, we were chosen by the courts to uh, help settle a dispute over her will first by taking an inventory of her possessions and then being given the job. And it was something that was humbling, to be sure, to represent her entire archive consisting of thousands of objects that, in fact, revealed that she was far, far more than the little woman who one day simply didn't give her a seat on the bus. Starting at around age 12, she was writing these long journals about uh, her determination to rid the world of some of the injustices she found around her. Uh, and, and that legacy is largely unknown. But when this archive was given to, to us and, and we were asked by the courts to find a home for it, I thought it would have been a slam dunk, the easiest hmm. assignment we'd ever had. Yeah. Uh, one, one call to the Smithsonian uh, would do it, I was sure, and if not that museum, I had several others in mind. But the problem developed when uh, the museums, which are always lacking funds, uh, just couldn't come up with the monies that seemed fair for the archive. Uh, offers were made. Uh, offers were made to cherry-pick the collection, which is to say to just choose some of the things and not take all of the things. But in the end, uh, by working with the media, which has been a, a great ally to us, we spread the word that um, it was unfortunate that Rosa Parks's important, important archive was languishing in Guernsey's miserable warehouse and really needed to be out there to be inspirational to people today and people into the future. And uh, the Howard G. Buffett uh, Foundation stepped up to the plate, uh, Mr. Buffett being Warren Buffett's son, <laughs> and acquired it from us and never took possession, asked us to stay on as the custodian until he determined that it should be given to the United States Library of Congress, which it was, and where it's recently been described as perhaps the most important body of material out of the 120 million things in the Library of Congress. Wow. So, yeah. Hey, one or two more questions, and thank you for being Arlen Ettinger so gracious with your time. First, what stands out in your mind in terms of something that has come across your desk over the years where you took it on, but you didn't really see the value? And then it was like, holy smokes, I can't believe it went for that. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, ooh, what didn't I see the value? I, I, well, 
I can tell you that many years ago, uh, I heard a story of uh, how a, a Florida gentleman inherited uh, an enormous uh, catch of pre-Castro Cuban cigars that, uh, <laughs> to make a very long story short, had been sitting in Spain in a hot, dry warehouse for 50 years while international litigation ensued over ownership. Uh, they had been removed from Cuba just prior to Castro's takeover in the late 1950s, and Castro decreed that they should be returned to the island. Well, the long, long fight ended with an American winning these guitars, the cigars, except that he was powerless to bring them into the country due to the embargo on Cuban products. Uh, but somehow we sensed that to a cigar smoker there would be nothing more precious. I don't smoke myself, but certainly know of people who do, and and uh, these seemed like they could be treasures, but you never knew. Um, so we went to the government, petitioned the State Department to allow them in on the argument that the sale of these cigars at auction in the United States would have no impact on the Cuban economy, which is the basis of the embargo, and in the only time since the establishment of the embargo, the government lifted it and allowed these cigars in, <laughs> except when they finally arrived here in the U.S., they proved to be the most miserable, <laughs> uh, dried-up little thing. Mm. They should have been stored in a humidor, which they were not. And so uh, if you touched one of them, it just sort of flaked apart in your fingers. And to make matters worse, little tiny worms, uh, <laughs> like the kind you find in wormy wood, had drilled holes in these things over the years. So we didn't know what to do uh, to cancel the event that was planned, the Cuban cigar auction. But uh, the show had to go on. Uh, you know, that's the way it is in our world. And we did it, and lo and behold, uh, many of those cigars brought uh, as much as $1,000 per cigar. Um, it wasn't about how they, I guess, how they smoked. It was really uh, almost a religious experience for people who acquired them. It's what they meant, much in the way, I suspect, of uh, one, one hears of some 100-year-old bottle of wine bringing a huge amount, uh, not because it tastes good, probably, if you open it up, it would taste like vinegar, but it's the label, it's the history, as it was with those cigars. Okay, final question, and that was the perfect segue. I will identify for you four curios that I own. I'm not selling any of them. You probably wouldn't be interested in any of them. But You're not selling them yet. <laughs> well, speak to my kids, all right? Um, I want to okay. know which of the four, which of the four has the most value. Item number one is, in fact, a box of Cuban cigars given to me by Fidel Castro and signed on the box. It's unopened. It's sitting in my humidor. That's number one. Number two, a plaque. Give. I can tell you're taking notes. I love this. Number two, a plaque given to O.J. Simpson by the Buffalo Boys Club in the early 1970s, seized from O.J., as part of the effort to pay off the Brown and Goldman families, you may remember that all of his personality was taken from that Rockingham estate and sold when he was hit with the civil judgment. Mm -hmm. Item number three, handcuffs worn by convicted murderer Ira Einhorn 
when he was returned to the United States, having been extradited from France after a huge, well-publicized case, he murdered a woman named uh, uh, Holly Maddox many, many years ago in Philadelphia, uh, self-proclaimed hippie guru who was the founder, he says, of Earth Day. That's Ira Einhorn. Finally, item number four. I feel like this is where the door behind which uh, Carol Merrill is standing, or whatever they used to say in Let's Make a Deal. S- yep, go ahead. Screens, screens that for years, Dorothy Draper decorated screens that for years hid the door, one of the blast doors, to the bunker, the secret bunker under the Greenbrier Resort. So I've got the Greenbrier screens, the handcuffs worn by Ira Einhorn, the O.J. Simpson plaque, or the cigars with with a with a perfect provenance, which can be substantiated, signed by Fidel Castro. Which has the greatest value? In my opinion. Yeah. And, I love this, uh, by the way. I love that you're game for this. Go ahead. Hey, look, I, I think this, to me anyway, is a slam dunk. It's a no-brainer. Um, and you can hear it. I, you know, I think you tried to be equally enthusiastic. I did, I did. With each, yes. And, and you, like uh, many, many collectors, think of these things as your children. I know you have regular, <laughs> real children, but to a collector, these are children, and right. how can you not love every one of them? Uh, and, and I get that. But I think the thing that resonated uh, to me uh, best was the one you started out with, the Cuban cigars. Yeah. Uh, the others all have sort of uh, unfortunate circumstances attached to them, uh, at least number two and three, um, the uh, Einhorn and the O.J. Simpson plaque, uh, the bunker drapes, that doesn't get me, but everything seems right about the Cuban cigars, uh, the the Castro uh, signature, uh, the fact that they were given to you personally, they weren't found at a flea market. Uh, there's a nice story there and very promotable. And, and at the end of the day, in our auctions, uh, it's all about the story. Uh, so when I came, that, that's what makes it compelling. When I came home, my wife was ecstatic to see the cigars, which I couldn't understand because she doesn't want me smoking in the house. And she's, I said, why are you so excited? She said, well, you know that the, the kids' school auction is next month, and this will go for a fortune. I said, you got to be kidding me. This is now a part of my estate. So someday it'll be sold at, uh, at Guernsey's. Well, your wife should team up with my wife, because <laughs> the end of, of my story is that two years after we did the Cuban cigar auction, uh, I was given a few boxes of cigars by the owner, who was very grateful for the effort, and we put them in the basement of a country home that uh, was notorious for flooding. And I sort of kept them down there just above the waterline, and one day we had a dinner party, and I told the Cuban cigar story, and half the people in the room were smokers and insisted that that was the night to bring them up. <laughs> and my wife, despite the fact that it was the winter, uh, threw us all out onto the porch, and I was with them, and I could have been smoking rolled-up newspaper. I wouldn't have known the difference. But about 20 people lit up, and a silence ensued uh, over the whole group. And then after a minute or two, uh, one fellow spoke up and said, uh, not the best cigar of my life, the best moment of my life, uh, to him and to many others, because I've seen this reaction on a few occasions when I've give, given more of these out. It truly was a religious experience. It was an opportunity to do something that he could only have dreamt of, uh, 
all his life. And to the credit of my damp basement, the cigars seem to have rejuvenated themselves, <laughs> uh, you know, on their own. So there you have it. Uh, master auctioneer and storyteller, Arlen Ettinger. Great job. Well done. And thank you so much for being here. Michael, my pleasure. He's the president and chief executive of Guernsey's, ladies and gentlemen. I love that. What a great conversation. It's the cigars. It's this. I knew it was going to be the cigars. I couldn't believe that when he started, when he when you asked him that yeah, question, yeah. I could not believe that's what he came up with. The cigars. I couldn't believe it. I I, I knew he was taking notes and oh, thinking, okay, all right, let's see. I let's, loved let's that see. dude. <laughs> loved him. And you were right, master storyteller, which it makes it a story. He says, "I can sell a story." Mm. I, I'm just. I I'm him. always drawn to you know the person who was in Lancaster and they they bought a five dollar painting and there was a Declaration of Independence. Uh, somewhere hidden, you know, in the uh, in the framing uh, job. All right. Well, that was fun.